Jesus, it is in you and you alone that we have hope. You are the author of history. You hold it between your hands. And Lord, we ask that you help us in these next few minutes hear from you and be guided by you and encouraged by you. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, hello to those of you at home. It's great to have you joining us as well as all of you. Today is going to be a little different. I'm not so much going to preach a sermon as I'm going to give a little bit of a history lecture. And here's why. The, uh, the, the passages we read talk about being able to read the times and know how to respond accordingly. That we want to be like those men of Issachar who understood their times and knew what to do. We want to be Christians who can do that. And so in order to understand our times, you have to understand where we've come from and how we got here. And so I'm going to talk about that because I believe we are in a cultural shift, the kind of which only happens once every five, six, seven hundred years. This is a unique moment in history. And what I want to do is look at a couple of other times where there have been these cultural shifts and how Christians have responded to help guide us through this so that we can be, as the scripture says, people who understand their times. And I need to warn you a little bit, this is going to be a bit of a fire hose. And the normally leisurely pace at which I speak <laughs> will be accelerated this morning. And so I want you to just kind of think of it as an impressionist painting. You know, if you look at it too close, it doesn't make sense. But this is about the whole, okay? So just stand back and kind of look at the whole of it. When I, when I was in graduate school, I'm going to channel my uh, former career. We're going to finally put that PhD to some good use. And when I, in my former career, when I, my dissertation was on what happens to various institutions, the arts, literature, politics, government, education, what happens to these various institutions in times of massive cultural shift, of which there have been three in the last 2,000 years. The first is the fall of Rome giving, going into the medieval period. The second was in the 1500s when we moved from the medieval period to the modern period. And then the third is the modern into the postmodern period that we're in now. Don't worry, that word's a fancy word. Don't worry about what it means. doesn't matter for today. Okay? Now, in this first major shift, Christians responded very well. Hence, they get a smiley face there at the right. Rome, the Roman Empire, gradually had become Christian over several hundred years, not through Christians using the sword, not through edicts, proclamations, or legislation, but because Christians lived a different life. They were more joyful. They were courageous in the face of persecution. They sacrificially loved those around them. And at first their values were repellent to the Roman culture around them, but gradually won Rome over the course of several hundred years. Rome became Christians, be Christian because people were attracted to that way of life. So Rome became Christian, and Rome controlled Europe, so Europe was Christian. But with the fall of Rome, various Viking and Celtic and Germanic tribes moved into Europe, and they were not Christian, so Europe was a post-Christian culture. So then Christians went out from Rome, where there were still Christians, went out to these places in missional communities, teams of maybe about 50 people, and they went to places like Ireland and England and Germany, and they, they, did, they did what the early Christians had done under the Roman Empire after the fall of Rome. They went to those places, lived a radically different life, sacrificially loved those around them. They had joy in the face of hard times. They had courage in the face of difficulties and persecution. And so gradually again, Europe was re-Christianized after the fall of Rome the second time 
without the use of the sword, without legislation. I'm, there were exceptions. I'm painting in broad brushstrokes. But mostly, Europe was re-Christianized without any coercion. That that should happen once under the Roman Empire was amazing. That it would happen twice without the use of the sword or coercion, a second time after the fall of Rome, that was a miracle. Christians got a smiley face. Okay, there are exceptions, but after the fall of Rome, smiley face. Okay, second period, not so good. They get a little frowny face. I'll go into why in a minute. And then the one that we are currently living in, TBD. Because <laughs> we're in it, right? So who is going to determine the outcome of that? Well, it's you and me, right? So we want to do it well. Now, in future sermons, I'm going to talk about how Christians did it well after the fall of Rome. That's in future sermons. But today I want to focus on that part where they didn't do it so well because this is what we've inherited. And to understand where we are, we need to understand where we've been so that we can read the times right and respond to this major shift that we are in the way those first Christians or the Christians of the first shift did after the fall of Rome, okay? So we're going we're gonna to talk about this second shift, medieval to modern, okay? So during this period, there were several things, kind of cultural earthquakes that were rapidly and dramatically changing the culture. You know, the difference between 1200 and 1300, it's not that big, right? The difference between 1700 and 1800, it's not that big, culturally speaking. But the difference between 1450 and 1650 is huge. The difference between 1945 and 2050 is going to be huge, culturally speaking. And in the 1500s, there were several things dramatically shifting the culture. The first one is probably the most important. So back in 99, at the turn of the millennium, a group of historians got together to decide who had had the most influence on culture in the last 1,000 years, from 1000 AD forward. Now that's a long list. Genghis Khan, Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein, Thomas Jefferson, long list, right? But who do you think they chose as number one? The person who had changed culture and history the most in the last 1,000 years. Take 30 seconds, turn to your neighbor, take a guess, go. <laughs> you were here at 9 o'clock, so, but how do you know I didn't change the answer? <laughs> that was awesome. Call on me, call on me. If you said Mr. Gutenberg and his printing press, you win the prize. Now, some of you didn't say that, did you? They knew. This was an absolute game changer. Because up until this time, you see, books had to be hand-copied, which meant they were very expensive, which meant only a tiny fraction of the population had access to them, therefore the knowledge and information contained within them. But once you could mass-produce books, the price went down and more and more people could afford them, and hence the information and knowledge was more widely dispersed. It was an information explosion. It was an information revolution. Does that sound familiar? Are we in one of those today? The second major thing that really shifted the culture was the European discovery of the Americas. Now, the Native Americans discovered it way earlier. And actually, Columbus did not, was not the first European to discover America. In fact, it was the Vikings 500 years earlier who even established little outposts in, in northern Canada. And then they abandoned them. And there were some hazy rumors running around Europe about this place called Vinland to the west, but no one really knew what it was. Nor did people think the world was flat in 1492. Okay, we knew, everyone knew that the world was round, known that since the Greeks. What they did not know was how big was the Atlantic Ocean. 
And so they were very afraid to sail west because they thought it just went on forever. Here be monsters. Right? But Columbus, he sails and he discovers what he thought was Asia, but we know now was America. Again, massive game changer. Right? Because they've been sitting in their kind of medieval sort of complacency, thinking that they knew the entire world, and suddenly there's not one, but there are four other continents out there, three of which have people and the other one has penguins. <laughs> and that just freaked them out. Like, what else don't we know? What else might be out there? What else could we discover? And it kind of launches this new way of asking questions. This, among other things, led to the, to, to the emergence of science later on, about 100 years later. Right? Science, just side note, science emerged only in the Christian West for a reason. Christianity was indispensable to the emergence of science. So, but that's a different lecture. But you can put that in your pocket and use it at a cocktail party, okay? So this launches this sort of wave of, what else don't we know? What else is out there? The world may be bigger than we think it is. Third major shift, nationalism. Up until this point, people mostly identified with their local town. If they thought of themselves kind of collectively at all, they thought of themselves as part of Christendom. There was a hazy idea of being French or English or things like that, but it was very weak. And the head of Christendom was the Pope, and he had enormous power. I mean, he could, if a king did something a pope didn't like, for instance, the pope could excommunicate the entire country. It was called an interdict, right? And so everyone in it was excommunicated. You couldn't do marriages. You couldn't do baptisms, that sort of thing. Plus, there was all this money that went to Rome from, uh, from all kinds of church taxes. Kings did not like this very much. You can only imagine, right? All that money going out. Plus, if, if the pope excommunicated the country, it became every Christian's duty in that country to kill the king. Or, th or, or incite revolution. So kings didn't like that so much. But around the 1500s, there starts to be a greater sense of nationalism. There is this thing called England. There's this thing called Spain. There's this thing called France. There's wanting to be a thing called Germany, but that was going to take a couple hundred years. Next major earthquake in this period was the Reformation, which in some ways is an outgrowth of two of the others. See, there had been attempts to reform the abuses in the medieval church before, but usually died in the local town where the reformer was. He'd get burned at the stake, that'd be that. But you see, Luther, Luther had a printing press, so he could get his ideas all over Europe. And there's this emerging sense of nationalism, and the German princes looked at Luther as this awesome opportunity to distance themselves from papal control, and hence all the taxes and money and all of that that went out, out to Rome. And so Luther had some very powerful allies. Now, back when I was in seminary, we used to celebrate Reformation Sunday, which always kind of, I thought was a little odd because it felt weird to celebrate the day the church splintered into a thousand different pieces. And some really nasty stuff came out of the Reformation, which I'm going to get to. Wars and whatnot. Now, some really great stuff came out of it, too. Some really good theology and stuff that I sign on to and, and believe. But it was, it, the reality was Luther and Pope Leo X were both pretty stubborn, pugnacious people. Had they been a little more gentle with one another, it might could have gone a little bit differently. And the Catholic Church did subsequently reform many of the abuses in what's called the Counter-Reformation. But this was also a radical questioning of authority. Now I can read the Bible for myself because it's printed and because there's a new theology, and the old certainties are dying away, and it's creating this major cultural shift. What we thought we knew, we don't know, and suddenly there's all this new stuff, new continents, new ways of thinking, questioning of authority, very scary, very unsettling period of time. And then finally, there's an ascetic and an epistemological shift. Here's what I mean by those fancy words. 
The medieval culture had many, it was not the Dark Ages. There were many beautiful things about it. One of the things about it was it was kind of an experience culture. Not a lot of people could read, so you learned, you knew things by experience. Think of a medieval cathedral, right? You go in, the eye, it's very tall, your eye goes up, there's stained glass, there's incense, there's bells ringing, smells, bells, right? It's shock and awe, right? And it's, it's to create this experience. But as you enter into the 16th century, now people are reading, and a new kind of way of thinking starts to emerge. When you read, you go left to right, left to right, left to right. That pattern starts to seep into the culture, and it becomes more linear sequential, more didactic, more rationalistic, more cerebral less experiential. This is the age of the three-hour sermon. Mm-hmm. Those were the good old days, man. And there were no charming illustrations about the pastor's kids either, no. No, three hours of straight, kind of linear, sequential, didactic, rationalistic argumentation. Queen Elizabeth I used to get very impatient with this, and if the sermon would go too long, or if the preacher strayed into politics from her balcony, she would shout, to your text, Mr. Smith, to your text. You might want to try that someday. <laughs> but not today. So you have all of these things happening. It's a time of massive cultural upheaval, right? And, and again, these only happen every five, six, seven hundred years, this kind of major shift. Now we are living through a third one. And it's got interesting connection points to the last one. Are we in an information revolution? Absolutely we are. Nationalism is sort of kind of coming undone. We're a global world, right? So what happens in Greece can affect a Main Street merchant in Montana. And all this started with Columbus. I mean, Columbus sails to America and suddenly you get spaghetti in Italy. Okay, noodles come from China and tomatoes come from the Americas. It's a globalized age, and we are more and more into it, which kind of frays the edges of nationalism. And then this aesthetic epistemological shift, we have shifted back to more of an experience culture, less linear sequential, less rationalistic. Think of Internet text that is both text as well as movie clips or videos. Think of the Super Bowl. Think of a rock concert, right? It's an experience. You can kind of chart the evolution of this over the 20th century by looking at the evolution of the birthday party throughout the 20th century. So back in the 1920s, if it was your birthday, you knew that your mother loved you because she got the sugar and the salt and the flour and she made you a cake. That was a goods economy. Back in the 50s, you knew that your mother loved you when it was your birthday because she went to the store and got Betty Crocker cake mix and made you a cake. Okay, that was a goods or a convenience economy. Excuse me, a convenience economy. Then in the 90s, this new thing happened. When it was your birthday, you knew mom loved you because she took you to Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> A.K.A. hell on earth. <laughs> that you might have an experience, right? And, and, it just, and now, I mean, now it's really elaborate. You know, birthday parties are bouncy houses and, you know, trips to the moon and, I don't know, parachuting onto a shark and you pet a dolphin. I mean, it's just, you know, experience is the name of the game. So we have some connections or some interesting places of connection to the last major cultural shift to the one we're going through right now. So what I want to do for the remainder of the time is to look at how Christians responded in the 1500s to that major cultural shift from medieval to modern. Because they did a lot of things wrong. 
and it can help guide us. Again, in the future, we'll talk about that first cultural shift, the fall of Rome, where Christians did a lot of things right. But I want to talk about the last one, because that's what we've inherited, in the one in the 1500s. So journey with me, if you will. And we're going to talk about the culture and the country that has most affected us, England. So in your mind, journey with me, if you will, back to England circa 1533. Good King Henry VIII is on the throne. The Wars of the Roses, the decades-long dynastic civil war between the House of Lancaster and House of York, are newly settled by Henry's father. And nobody wants to go back to it. There's just one tiny problem. Henry has no heir, and his wife is past childbearing years. Okay, now, he did have a daughter named Mary, but it's 1533, so that doesn't count, right? Henry doesn't really know what to do about this. He kind of dithers and he's kind of paralyzed until a tarted-up little vixen named Anne Boleyn crosses his path and becomes his royal mistress. Now, he'd had many mistresses, just like a lot of kings had mistresses back then, but Anne was unique. She was very smart, she was very clever, and she did a very unique thing. She refused to sleep with him until he married her. Okay, in 1533, that was not the job description of a royal mistress, right? That was like one of her main key accountabilities, right? But she, no one knows how she got away with it. Basically, her message to Henry was, if you like it, you better put a ring on it. <laughs> Anticipating Beyonce by 400 years, 500 years. So Henry decides he's going to get an annulment. You couldn't get a divorce. Okay, but you could get an annulment. The Pope would find some technicality that meant that your marriage, even if it was 30 years old, was never valid and it was declared null and void, which meant you were free to ask someone else. Now, kings often got their annulment, but in this case, there's a problem. You see, Henry's queen is not just any old queen. She is Catherine of Aragon, daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. Royal Isabella, who is queen in her own right. Royal blood flowed in her veins from both sides of her family, and she would not go gentle into that good night. On top of it, her nephew is the emperor of Central Europe who currently holds the pope hostage in a castle in Rome. So the pope is between a rock and a hard place. He's got Henry on one side and he's got the emperor on the other. And at one point, the pope literally fell on the ground, pounded his fists on the ground, and was crying. And he said, God must hate me to force me to make this decision. My very mature kind of pope, right? So he, he's, there's a stalemate, total stalemate. So Henry has this idea. Actually, his advisors did. Now, Henry hated the Reformation. He had actually written a treatise against Luther that had earned him the title Defender of the Faith. Hated the Reformation, but there was this one idea that he rather liked. And that was that the Pope was not the head of the church. In fact, it was the monarch for Henry in his thinking. And so he decided that he'd keep everything Catholic, all the smells, all the bells, all the rituals, but just change one little thing, and instead of the Pope, Henry would be the head of the church in England. Now, <laughs> actually, Jesus is the head of the church. But to Henry, those were the same things. So there's this <laughs> parliament passes what's called the Act of Restraint of Appeals, which contains the, uh, uh, the sentence, this island of Eng England is an empire entire unto itself. Nationalism. Henry has himself declared he head of the church, and he immediately grants his own divorce. His ministers did it, but it was under his authority. Isn't that convenient when you can do that for yourself? Right? So he then marries Anne Boleyn, she's pregnant, and she then has a baby. Girl! Oh no! That is not what he risked his kingdom for, but maybe she could have more kids, but she didn't. Several miscarriages later, things are going bad, and then this thing happened that Anne Boleyn had probably been praying for, but it was her death warrant. Because you see, her rival, wife number one, Catherine of Aragon, died of natural causes. 
Anne had probably wanted that. Clear the way. Now there's no rival. But actually it had the reverse effect because Henry started to think, well, wife number one is dead. If some tragic, unfortunate event should occur to wife number two, well, then no one would ever dispute that wife number three was legitimate. So his advisors kind of got some charges together of adultery against Anne Boleyn, which she almost certainly did not do. But in a queen, adultery is treason because you're messing with the royal succession. It was probably, she probably didn't do it, but it was trumped up charges. She was convicted and off with her head. Henry marries wife number three, Jane Seymour, who gives him the much longed for son. Now, Jane Seymour comes from a very radically Protestant family. That's going to be important. Okay? But she dies in childbirth. And so then he goes on to, you got to get another wife, he goes on to Anne of Cleves, also a Protestant. Right now, earlier on, when Henry was young, he was one of the most handsome princes in all of Europe. In fact, people thought he was a real catch. But by this point, he's like this, okay? <laughs> and the painter is doing him some favors here, all right? I have seen his armor, he was a big man. And he had an open sore on his leg from a jousting wound that wouldn't heal, and it smelled so bad you could smell it kind of uh, several rooms away, right? <laughs> so he marries Anne of Cleves, and after their wedding night, he says to his advisors, she was fat and she smelled bad and I couldn't consummate the marriage. Well, the truth is there was someone who was fat and smelly in that room that night. <laughs> it just wasn't Anne, okay? So he decides to divorce her. She readily agrees. No fuss, no muss. He is so grateful. He gives her a bunch of money and castles, gives her the title sister to the queen. She is second only to the queen of England in rank in England. She got the best deal. Just married to him for a little bit and then become rich, okay? Then he marries the beautiful but very, very stupid Catherine Howard, who actually does commit adultery. Hello, did you see what happened to Anne Boleyn when she did not commit adultery? Okay, this is a bad idea, Catherine. Off with her head, and then Catherine Parr, also radically Protestant, nurses the old man into his grave. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. And then Edward is king. But he's only nine. So they put together kind of a regency, some advisors around him that would govern England, many of them drawn from his Seymour Protestant relatives, and Catherine Parr is, is, is kind of his stepmom as well as Elizabeth's stepmom, right? So there's a lot of Protestant influence on Edward. And under Edward, he, Edward jerks England far to the left to the radical Protestant side. They go into churches, they smash up altars, they whitewash uh, frescoes, they smash up stained glass windows, out with the smells, out with the bells, out with Catholicism altogether. Henry tried to keep it all Catholic except just that one change. Edward moved them far to the left toward the Protestant side, but he only lasted five years, and then he died. And then there was a brief coup d'etat by a man named John Dudley. Yes, a relation. <laughs> to put his daughter-in-law on the throne illegally. It lasted nine days, and John Dudley was, was executed for treason. Other Dudleys fled to the Americas, and that's how you go from being one of the most noble families in England <laughs> to farmers in eastern Washington. <laughs> Let that be a lesson to you. All right, Mary, his oldest daughter, Henry's oldest daughter, becomes queen. I thought briefly about titling this, Why Is This Woman Smiling? She started out nice, but she watched her mother get shoved aside by, by Protestants, and she was mad. 
Edward, for five years, had yanked England hard and far to the left. After five years of that, Mary went the other way and yanked England hard to the right toward Catholicism, back with the smells, back with the bells, back with the Pope, back with the mass, back with everything. So they went left, they went right, five years, five years. And Mary was mad. And she started burning Protestants at the stake. Now, Edward had burned some Catholics at the stake, okay, for their heresy. Mary, in response, starts burning Protestants at the stake. She marries the king of Spain, and she has two hysterical pregnancies. What that means is she swelled up. She said she felt something moving inside of her. But after 18 months, it was really clear she wasn't pregnant. <laughs> this happened twice. She decided that God must be punishing her for burning all those Protestants at the stake. No, 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 for not burning enough of them. So she doubles down on her policy, orders that more be burned and that the wood be wet, that their suffering might be long. And finally, this horrible homunculus of a human being dies after only five years. And there is rejoicing all over England, right? Like, ding dong, the witch is dead. Yay, she's gone. Okay, even Catholics were happy to see her gone. But also because now, <laughs> now there's only one left. Oh, and such a one. Everyone who studies this period gets an incredible crush on Elizabeth I. She was beautiful. She was brilliant. Seven languages. She spoke seven languages fluently, could conduct diplomacy in any one of them on the spot. The Pope said there is no man in Europe that can outwit this devil woman. And she was strong. She was fond of saying, I am my father's daughter. Henry VIII offered her head, father. I am my father's daughter. Right? In, 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 when, when the Spanish Armada was sailing toward England, she dressed as a warrior, rode down to the battle lines, and paraded in front of her troops, dressed in armor, giving one of the greatest speeches in English history, in which she, partly what she said was, I may be a frail, weak woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and a king of England, too. Now off to war, right? Oh, Liz, Liz, ah. <laughs> Talk to me, sweetheart. You're just awesome, right? Everyone feels that. My wife feels that way about Elizabeth, right? And everyone loves this woman. She was brilliant. She was strong. She was everything. And she, everyone, what is she going to do? Right? Remember, hard to the left, hard to the right, stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight. Imagine being an Englishman through this period. Okay, what, are we Protestant today? Are we Catholic today? Am I going to get burned at the stake for believing what, 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 what? What's Elizabeth going to do? Well, she's the daughter of Anne Boleyn, so she's going to be Protestant. But she chooses a middle way kind of a blend between the rituals of Roman Catholicism and the theology and, and, and worship style of Protestantism, which kind of blends it. It's called the Via Media, the middle way. And then she thinks this thought that really no one before had really thought, except for Jesus, but no one understood what he meant. And she says this thing. She says, look, as sovereign, I command your body. I can send you to war. I can make you pay taxes. I command your body, but your conscience and your soul belongs to God, and no monarch can meddle. So she said, only do these three things. You've got to go to church at least sometimes so that you look like you're conforming. Otherwise, it's going to be the focus of rebellion. Do not plot treason and do not plot against the sovereign's life. Do those three things and you can believe whatever you want to believe because the conscience belongs to God alone and no monarch can meddle there. And with that... Elizabeth picked up a hammer and a chisel and gave a tap that began a split between this thing we call church and state. And no one had really thought that before. 
except for Jesus, when he said, render under Caesar what is Caesar's, but under God what is God's. And it was this middle way, and that was the settlement. It held. It held until today, really, except for a brief period in the 1640s where several groups of nasty different people got together and chopped off the king's head because he wasn't Protestant enough, and they smashed up some more altars, hacked up organs because they didn't like organ music. God will not be worshipped with whistles. Well, it was their kind of thing. And several different groups of nasty people did that. And one of those groups was called Presbyterians. But that's a different story. <laughs> we got over it, okay? Elizabeth found this middle way that brought peace, that brought a settlement. All that warfare, all that turmoil, all that burning at the stake. What's my point? Several. First, when Christians seek political or coercive means to accomplish their goals, it is often bad for both church and state. Yes, Jesus wants to revive culture. He wants to revive all things. Families, marriages. He wants to revive people out of poverty. He wants to revive hope. He wants to revive people knowing him. Yes, but his tools, his weapons are not the tools and the weapons of this world. It is a spiritual battle. And in that first shift, after the fall of Rome, Christians leaned on the spiritual forces. They did not resort to coercion or, or, or force or the sword, for the most part, painting in broad brushstrokes. Under the Roman Empire, they didn't do it either. And it worked. It changed a culture. But in this period, Christians resorted to the government and to force, and it was bad for most people. Okay? It was a very bad, well, for all people in one way or another. It is mostly bad when Christians do that. There's exceptions, but it's mostly bad. Second, in spite of that, Jesus still gets his work done in spite of us. Yes, we screw up. We mess up. But somehow the church went forward. Somehow out of this chaos, some beautiful theology emerged. In spite of all the chaos, in spite of all the bloodshed, somehow some really cool things emerged out of this. After this, even cooler things started to emerge. John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, all kinds of good stuff came out of this. People screw up, but Jesus can still get his work done in spite of us. Which brings me to this. God is still in charge no matter what. It is scary to live through one of these major cultural shifts. There's only been three in the last 2,000 years. Everything's up for grabs. All the old certainties seem to be going away, right? This has happened three times in the last 2,000 years. It is scary. What's the new thing going to be? And in the middle of that, we can sometimes behave very badly out of fear. But God is still in charge no matter what. That is good news. He boundaries history. I hear Christians these days wringing their hands over the state of our culture. Oh, this and that and the other and blah, blah, blah. As though God were not on the throne. As though God hadn't seen it all before. As though God did not boundary history between his hands. He does. How big is our God? We survived the 16th century. No one's burning you at the stake. Okay? God is still on his throne. And though the wrong is often strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died will be satisfied, and earth and heaven will be one. Trust in him. Lean on him. Do not resort to the weapons of this world. Resort to the spiritual battle in him. And then finally, and here's my main point. This is a once-in-centuries moment that we live in. This kind of massive cultural shift doesn't happen every old century. Three times in 2,000 years. What that means is God must have a lot of confidence in you and in us to have us born in this time and place. For such a time as this, we have been called into his service. You could have been born in any century. 
But you were born here and now, and not just in any place. You are here in this place. I mean, the crossroads of, you know, the, the, the Silicon, or not Silicon Valley, the technology industry, a revolution is here, gateway to Asia, all kinds. The president of China came here to tie up our traffic. <laughs> that is how important we are. He could have gone to Duluth and tied up their traffic, but he came here, <laughs> right? This is not an accident. This kind of cultural shift doesn't happen very often. God must have enormous faith in you and enormous faith in me and enormous faith in us to have us born in this time, in this moment, in this place. We have two examples from history. And again, in the, in the future sermons, I'll talk about how Christians responded to the fall of Rome and re-Christianized a post-Christian culture. I'll talk about how they did that well. We have a bad example in front of us, and then we have a TBD, and we're the D. We're the determiners. We're the ones that are going to determine how this thing plays out. And God must think a lot of you and me to have us here in this time and this place. It's what Moses says to the people of Israel before they cross into Israel. He says, behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse, life and death. Choose life that you might live. And as for me and my house, we will choose the Lord. And Bell Press, I know you, and I know your heart, and I know you want to make a difference. You want to get that smiley face. You're Eastsiders. You want that smiley face on your paper. <laughs> you want that A+. I know you do. And for such a time as this, God has called you into his service. So that TBD, when it is written, it is written well. And may it be said of us, they follow Jesus their Lord, trusting in only in him. Because you see, culture comes and culture goes. And culture shifts all over the map. And sometimes that is scary. And sometimes a whole bunch of bad stuff happens in the middle of that. But Jesus is still on his throne. And our hope is not in our government. And our hope is not in the Supreme Court. Our hope is not in the legislature. Our hope is not in the media. Our hope is not in any cultural form. Our hope is not in technology. Our hope is in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. So what do you say, Bell Press? That cross cannot be defeated. Jesus is on the move. All we have to do is keep our eye on him. Jesus, culture comes and culture goes, but you are God of it all. Lord, help us to be people who respond well in this season. Thank you. You could have put us in any century. You put us here. And Lord, help us to be good stewards of that enormous vote of confidence you have given us. And Lord, help us to partner with you to revive all things your way, your time, in your name. Amen.